All right, hello. Welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. Uh, sorry, this is going to be a little bit of a long one. I was trying to bite off a short idea, but it turned into kind of a long analysis. So we'll see. Uh, uh, but I think it will be interesting. At least I find it um, an interesting way to think about communication, we'll say. Let's think about communication. So back in 1979, the literary critic, lots of good things came out in 1979, but one of the good things that came out in 1979 was a book by the, the literary critic Wayne Booth called Critical Understanding. Uh, and this book was the culmination of more than 20 years, at least, of thinking about how critics interact with each other, and especially about how they make straw men of each other. Uh, critical understanding was part of an effort, as Booth said, to turn critical warfare into pluralistic inquiry. So turning critical warfare, fighting among critics, into more of a cooperative kind of uh, inquiry into literature, or I guess whatever you might be inquiring about. Although Booth, although Booth was focusing on how critics treat other critics and how they treat the authors of literary works, his strategies for understanding can be utilized more generally, I think, in various domains of life. So that's why I thought this is worth talking about. Um, as a critic, Booth was a uh, practitioner and promoter of a certain type of criticism called rhetorical criticism. Um, but Booth did not believe that his personal method of criticism was the one true method, rather as a kind of a meta metacritic, someone who theorizes about criticism. Booth was a pluralist, and specifically what he called a limited or methodological pluralist. A pluralist about criticism uh, believes that there are many possible valid methods of analyzing texts. A limited pluralist believes that there are many possible valid methods of analyzing texts, but also that there are some methods that are invalid. So criticism is not just a world of anything goes. There are some broad standards that we do or that we should abide by to be taken seriously by other critics. A limited pluralist is also not a relativist because the limited pluralist believes that some methods are better than others given the kinds of things that we want to know about texts. So in the following, I want to, uh, you know, in the rest of this episode, I want to sketch out what uh, Booth standards for good critical community are. Although he's focused on literary criticism in his book, in the book Critical Understanding, Booth suggests that these um, standards, these values, have a more broad application, and that's also what I want to suggest here. Booth's four values um, of vitality, justice, understanding, and overstanding are not just good standards for critical interactions, I'm going to kind of argue. They are good standards for most social or political interactions. Booth's position of limited pluralism is, I think, the democratic position. In a democracy, a certain range of ideological positions is allowable and, as Booth would say, vital. Uh, but a democracy or an open society is not just anything goes. Certain positions need to be excluded for an open society to function. Um, Booth's standards for 
An open and lively critical community are worth keeping in mind when thinking about the broader community you find yourself in. So Booth argues um, especially for three basic inseparable values that should guide us in doing and evaluating criticism, or let's say in doing social interaction generally. Uh, but there's also a fourth that grows out of these. So the three basic values are vitality, justice, and understanding. And the fourth is overstanding. So we'll look at each of these and why overstanding, which is actually like a kind of misreading or violating of a text, why this can have a certain value as well. So vitality. Vitality is the tendency to, the tendency of something to perpetuate itself, basically, to keep going. Uh, so how likely is some type of activity to lead to more of that type of activity? How vital is the activity? When we read criticism, we can ask, does this critical statement in fact increase the likelihood of further critical life? As criticism is a social activity, right? It requires a community. And so for Booth, the vitality of criticism is the vitality of a critical community. Increase the vitality of the community, increase the vitality of criticism and the vitality of the critic. The vitality of criticism is the vitality of a way of life. So you can maybe see already how, thing, how this is connected to as normal everyday life. Criticism's not kind of a, its own separate thing, it's part of life. Um, so we can ask, does a critic limit more kinds of, more good kinds of talk about literature or invite more kinds of good talk about literature? Does a critic vitalize the community of readers and writers or only him or herself? In short, Booth, Booth asks, uh, what incentive do you give to other participants to continue, to, uh, to continue the fray, the argument, the debate, the contest, the dialogue? Are you helping the conversation continue or are you trying to turn it into a monologue? Are you supporting a non-zero-sum expansion of the world of good criticism or do you just want things done in your own way, in which case, when you win, I lose and vice versa? which would, in, Booth's, uh, in Booth way, Booth's way of thinking, that would reduce the vitality. If I can only win if you lose, if you can only win when I lose, this reduces our vitality. So in fact, both the non-zero-sum and the zero-sum positions are selfish in a certain way, but the non-zero-sum position is selfish in a smart way, we might say. Booth points out that the vitality of the critic the critic's tendency to keep doing criticism is dependent on the community. So the more a critic improves the community, the more she improves herself. I'll come back to this point about individual and social vitality, the interrelationship of individual and social vitality when I get to uh, understanding. Um, now, obviously, we don't want to encourage bad literature and bad literary criticism. But so far, we're preliminary to deciding whether a critical method or even a political position or something like that, we're before deciding whether that is good or bad, we're preliminary to making value judgments about goodness or badness. So how we figure out, at least to some extent, of course, you, if, uh, if a, a method reduces vitality, uh, then we can say it's worse than one that improves vitality. But how we figure out what is good and bad is still in question. 
So far, we're trying to make sure that the community is not preemptively limited. Good criticism, at least, promotes vitality, but good criticism is also more than that. Vitality is not the only value, but it does seem to be maybe the first value, right? In the same way that you need to be alive for anything else to be important. Uh, you know, if you're not living, if you're not participating, then nothing really else matters. So vitality is about promoting non-zero-sum critical games that allow the community to continue to exist and grow. All right, but vitality needs to be balanced against justice and understanding, the uh, two other kind of main values. So let's talk about justice first. First, For Booth, justice basically means no double standards. If you live by the sword, be prepared to die by the sword. This is a version of the golden rule, and variations on the golden rule can be found throughout Booth's writing. This was a very central, um, central component of his thought. You find variations of the golden rule kind of everywhere in different ways in his uh, meta-critical writings. Uh, so whatever critical method or standard or way of reading you promote, Booth says, that method should be applicable to your own writing just as much as to others. The deconstructionist critic J. Hillis Miller, who I've also talked about before, had something like this in mind when he used to write that a piece of deconstructive criticism is also deconstructible. So, so far, um, Miller's method would be considered sound because it was not a double standard. It was kind of had the same standard for um, other people as it had for the critic, right? Everything was deconstructible, uh, despite whatever problems that method may have from uh, Booth's perspective. So anyway, there are many uh, reasons to analyze a text. We may be interested in what knowledge a text gives us, um, in how the text affects our behavior as readers. Um, we may be interested in the history of how the text came to be and how it has influenced the artistic or social or political world, and so on. Um, more controversially, we can read against the grain, as critics sometimes say. We can look for hidden assertions or hidden biases in the text uh, more kind of sloppily. We can create straw men straw women of other critics and authors by exaggerating what they say or leaving out context and things like that. <clears throat> if a critic employs one standard in reading the texts of others but wants a different standard of reading applied to his or her own texts, we should be suspicious. Uh, so in other words, justice doesn't need a single standard, it just needs reciprocal or transpersonal standards. Um, perhaps rather than double standards, we should speak of asymmetrical standards. Uh, and what we need are not single standards, but symmetrical standards, right? So again, this is a variation of the golden rule. Judge others as you would be judged. Booth, um, Booth sometimes talks about a three-criteria test of criticism. These three criteria are correspondence, coherence, and adequacy or comprehensiveness, if you've studied theories of truth, you might recognize, um, might recognize this a little bit. Uh, so if we look at an act of criticism, we can ask, do the observations of the critic correspond to what we find in the text and the relevant context? Um, we can ask, do the statements of the critic cohere with each other or make sense together? 
And we can ask how much of the text or context does the critic take into account? How comprehensive is the criticism? When we look at how, uh, so then when we look at how critics treat other critics, we can ask, does a critic demand a higher degree of correspondence or coherence or comprehensiveness for others than he does for himself? Or more generally, do you expect others to be more honest, more rational, more inclusive than you yourself in fact are? Uh, if so, this is a violation of the standard of justice. And I think a part of the symmetry of standards is what Booth calls the law of disparate giftedness. So long phrase, the law of disparate giftedness. This is about showing a preliminary respect to authors or more generally to speakers. The law of disparate giftedness comes from an ancient Greek historian and rhetorician. That's not too important right here. But the law says that in any exchange, the speaker or author presumably has more to offer than the listener or the reader. Presumably, the speaker wouldn't be speaking if she didn't have something important to say, and the listener wouldn't be listening if she didn't have something important to learn. This is especially true when we're dealing with something that's been tested by time. So whether that time of testing is centuries of transmission, you know, the centuries of transmission that has taken, uh, taken it to get a text from point A to point B to the present, or whether that time has just been the, you know, the weeks or the months or the years that um, an author has needed to get an article or a book into print, you know, past all the stages of publication and so on. So before the reader gets a te text, the author has usually already spent more time on it than the reader ever will. A kind of golden rule symmetry comes into play again, given other authors' efforts, you know, give other authors' efforts the respect that you would want them to give yours. Respect other speakers to the extent that you would want to be respected when it's your turn to speak. This supports the vitality of the community, and it's a first step toward understanding. Uh, so once we're sure that we have our standards in symmetrical order, once we're sure that we're treating others the way we want to be treated, justice may still require that we kill another critic, so to speak. Not actually kill, but metaphorically kill. By using our various standards and tests, we can see that some statements by uh, critics make use of grossly asymmetrical standards or contain obvious errors of backlaring incoherencies, oversimplifications, like straw manning, and so on. Uh, but justice here has to be restrained by vitality as well as by the third value understanding, which I'll talk about in a moment. And these require that we proceed cautiously. Everyone makes mistakes. We need to be sure that the vitality of the community is protected and that we have actually, actually understood the other critic. So let's move on to understanding our third major value. Um, Understanding a text for Booth is knowing an author's intention. Basically, what an author wants of us by having written a text. To understand a text, we need to reconstruct the author's intention, or more generally, the speaker's intention. Figure out what the author was trying to do when she wrote the text. And then make that project our own. Turn that project into our own project. And then we can say that we've understood it. Booth describes this as entering into or incorporating part of the mind of another. 
So a quick and easy example is a grocery store sign that Booth reproduces in his book. There's a grocery a sign that he saw in the grocery store. The sign says, due to paper shortage, we are to discontinue use doubling bags only when it is necessary. So again, due to paper shortage, we are to discontinue use doubling bags only when it is necessary. So the sign, uh, you know, it's easier if you actually see this, but the sign makes no sense grammatically. Probably you can tell that when I try to read it as well, that it just doesn't really make sense. But you can still kind of get the idea. So we understand what the people who wrote it meant. We can figure out what they intended. They want us to know, basically, the grocery store workers are only going to double bag our groceries when it's absolutely necessary because there's not enough paper. And this is, of course, from back in the days when grocery stores automatically gave you paper bags for your groceries. Some of you may remember that. Some of you may not. Or to take another example, at one point, uh, Booth quotes a long passage from the French critic Roland Barthes and then gives two paraphrases of this quoted passage. So neither paraphrase captures everything that Barthes was trying to say. So neither is totally comprehensive. If you wanted to be comprehensive, you might just requote the passage, or it might be long, as long or even longer than the passage, which kind of defeats the purpose of a paraphrase. So, of, of course, neither paraphrase captures everything that Bart was trying to say, but one of them is more clearly accurate. There's more correspondence than the other. So Booth's argument here is that um, Bart would have preferred one paraphrase over the other, and this means that Booth has understood Bart to some extent, and that Bart would have understood Booth's two paraphrases. So understanding basically is possible, is what he's trying to say. Not everyone would um, want to make such a um, kind of clear argument about understanding. Understanding may seem more problematic to some people than others, but Booth's point is that understanding does take place to some extent. Right? And you can see it in examples like this. We can show that, we can kind of demonstrate to an author that we have to some extent understood their work. They can understand what we're saying. Understanding happens. Um, <clears throat> but one question is, does seeking after the author's intention in this way limit vitality? Limit our, does it conflict with our other value? Um, that seems to be the argument of some newer critics around the time that Booth was writing. So people like Roland Barthes himself, um, but also people like Harold Bloom, Jacques Derrida, J. Hillis Miller, and others in that kind of world of new, uh, newer criticism. So they, people like that wanted to argue that intentions were unrecoverable or undecidable, that texts were, in a sense, unreadable. And... Um, in this way, they gave new powers to the reader. They newly empowered the reader, perhaps. Um, and in one sense, of course, it's impossible to perfectly reconstruct the conditions that caused a complex text, such as a poem or a novel or a critical essay, to come into existence. We can't totally know what the intention was, what all the factors were that um, led the author to write that. And it's likewise impossible to perfectly reconstruct the effects, like the future effects that the poem, poem or novel or essay was intended to have. So we don't know exactly, uh, and maybe even the author can't say exactly what they hoped the text would accomplish in the world. 
literature tends to be more complex in its history and in, in its effects than signs in grocery stores. But critics like Bart and Miller don't really seem to be saying that understanding as the reconstruction of intention is impossible, so much they more seem to be saying that it's undesirable. At least this is Booth's interpretation. So it's undesirable. Reconstructing the intention is undesirable because it limits the freedom of the reader. The real interest, um, Booth thinks, of Roland Barthes and others is expanding the freedom or the vitality of the reader. And they take this to be higher maybe than uh, Booth's kind of understanding. So there appears to be a conflict between vitality and understanding. But Booth thinks that this apparent conflict is based on an error, a mistake. The meaning, what he calls the meaning multipliers or polysignifiers, poly people like um, Bart and Miller and Derrida, think that understanding, as Booth defines it, limits freedom and that misreading, that is uh, a, a word made, or a concept made famous by Harold Bloom, I think that misreading enhances freedom. Booth has two different kinds of arguments against this in his own writings. Uh, in some places he points out that there is a double standard or asymmetry here. Uh, misreaders generally want their works to be read, not misread, right? They want to be understood. Um, of deconstructionists, misreaders want to limit, in fact, the interpretations that readers give to their own texts even while promoting multiple interpretations of other texts. Uh, this is a little bit more, maybe a little bit more complicated than Booth um, lays out, but that's you know, a topic for another day. Um, but Booth argues, so there's maybe an asymmetry of standards here at work. But Booth also argues that misreaders also have a mistaken assumption about freedom or vitality. They think freedom means going beyond limits imposed by others. For Booth, on the other hand, freedom means going beyond one's own limits, the ability to go beyond your own limits. And to go beyond your own limits means entering into the experiences of others, putting yourself in others' experience, taking on others' experiences, which are different from your own and will expand you, give you more possibilities for freedom. So Booth writes, we do not lose our freedom by molding our minds in shapes established by others. We find it there. As Kant says, repudiating the possibility of unlimited knowledge, the light dove cleaving the air in her free flight and feeling its resistance might well imagine that its flight would be still easier in empty space. This is a famous passage from Kant about the importance of limitations, about the importance of limits. It's the restrictions provided by the environment that make the birds, the doves, flight possible. It would not be able to fly at all in totally empty space, in a vacuum, as much as it might yearn, yearn for that kind of absolute freedom. Likewise, if a critic is not simply to display her pre-established biases over and over again, she needs to be able to enter into an understanding with the work. And this means being open to being checked by the author who can say, yes, this is, or no, this isn't what I was trying to do with my text or by other critics, being checked by other critics who can say, yes, I agree, or no, I don't agree with your interpretation of the text. In ordinary life, of course, we can often check with the speaker about whether we have understood him or her. We can ask questions like, what do you mean by saying X? 
Or when you said X, did you really mean Y? And we can ask these kinds of questions and uh, come to a better understanding, put greater limits on our understanding and uh, more accurately uh, understand the other person. So vitality, justice, and understanding. These are our three main interdependent values. As Booth says, the vitality of criticism depends on maintaining standards of justice. And both depend, both vitality and justice, depend on an active pursuit of understanding. If we want to protect the vitality of our community, we need to maintain symmetrical standards of justice. And if we want to be sure that justice is being done, we need to do our best to really understand each other. And doing our best to understand each other is part of what makes a community just and part of what keeps a community vital. But there may be times when the demands of vitality and justice push us beyond understanding in the conventional sense of knowing what the text wants of us. Texts come, texts come to us with different demands that we learn as leaders, readers. Uh, we learn to recognize and experience with experience, right? We learn to recognize what texts want us to do. The grocery store sign that I mentioned, due to paper shortage, uh, due to paper shortage, we are to discontinue use, doubling bags only when it is necessary. Um, this sign demands that we behave in a certain res uh, a certain way with respect to it. For example, it demands a utilitarian response. It demands setting our kind of practical expectations in a certain way. It does not demand an aesthetic response. We're not meant to admire the beauty of the sign or feel catharsis in the sign's evocation of the tragedy of being or anything like that. We're just meant to have kind of a practical utilitarian response to it. Likewise, the Bible or Hamlet or the New York Times ask for certain kinds of responses from us or a certain range of responses. The Bible, Hamlet, the New York Times, these were each designed to do something in particular, to answer certain questions or needs that we might have. But there are times when we might be justified in asking other questions of these texts rather than the questions they were designed to answer. All texts set or imply boundaries on how they are to be read. But there's always a question of whether we should honor those boundaries, right? So we may be justified by our current culture or by the kinds of problems we're trying to solve. Uh, we may be justified in asking questions that the text was not originally designed to answer. This process of asking questions that the te text is not designed to answer, this is what Booth calls overstanding as opposed to understanding. So the modern critic who asks about sexism, say, in Shakespeare or in the Bible, may be said to overstand the text. Likewise, the critic who deconstructs uh, Shakespeare or the Bible. These, were, these texts were not designed to answer questions about sexism or feminism or to be deconstructed, but they may be made to answer these kinds of questions anyway. Uh, but overstanding is, or should be, based on preliminary understanding and justice. Before you read a text against the grain, or anachronistically, or correct a text, or deplore a text, or repudiate a text, you first have to understand it. 
you first have to understand what a text was designed to do. We're probably right to violate a text like Mein Kampf or the 120 Days of Sodom. But to do so, we perhaps unfortunately need to understand what it is we're violating. Uh, in, you know, in these cases, overstanding maybe even becomes an ethical necessity. Hitler, uh, Hitler in Mein Kampf wants to prove to us that the Jews were really the source of Germany's problems. Obviously, we don't want to just make that project our own. Uh, we want to ask additional questions of the text that Hitler would not have wanted us to ask. The vitality of our community and our sense of justice demand that we not just understand Hitler's text, but also violate it or overstand it. Uh, and Booth points out that there are various kinds of violations of texts, and it's worth briefly mentioning these, although it gets a little bit technical. Uh, but violations of a text can be either of data or of danda. D-A-N-D-A, danda. These violations have their sources in various sources, in particular modes of criticism or the idiosyncrasies of uh, critics. But um, the distinction between data and danda comes from the philosopher Stephen C. Pepper. Used to be well known. I don't think he's so uh, so much read anymore, but used to have uh, some influence. Uh, data is what appears to be appears to us to be uncontested and uncontestable. Either Invisible Man was written in uh, was published in 1952, or it wasn't. Either Moby Dick is the name of a whale, or it isn't. Either. Neo in the Matrix swallows the red pill or he doesn't. Data is what we know about a text, regardless of our critical position. <clears throat> Data can always turn out to be less certain than we first thought, but at any given time there's a bunch of stuff about a text that we all basically agree on. Maybe not a hundred percent, but we basically agree these are facts about a text. Critics generally try not to violate a text's data. This is a practical thing, right? Critics try not to violate the text data because these violations will just seem to other critics like obvious mistakes. And it's kind of a common thing in book reviews to point out, you know, the, the author made this, got this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. And uh, so you try not to do that just because it's an easy way that other critics can attack you. Instead, most violations of a text are violations of what Pepper called danda, D-A-N-D-A. Danda are observations that are only available from certain critical perspectives. So while data ideally survive all critical perspectives, danda are unique to um, a certain critical perspectives. For example, um, the penultimate line of Ode on a Grecian Urn is beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Right? This is a datum about the poem. It's part of the data of the poem. Um, but what the line actually means, what the line beauty is truth, truth, beauty actually means is a dandum, which will vary with the uh, critic's method. Right? There's lots of huge um, literature about what this poem and what this line means because it's not just in the poem itself. You have to decide it based on where you're coming from. So when the critic, critic Kenneth Burke famously says that the line beauty is truth, truth beauty, when he says that this means body is turd, turd body, this is a dandum. It's an observation only available from a certain 
idiosyncratic uh, Burkean critical perspective. It's hard to believe that Keats really meant that body is turd and turd is body. Um, so Burke here overstands the text in the service probably of some kind of higher or maybe lower understanding depending on how you think about it. Um, so as another example, another quick example of a violation of Danda based on mode or method, I, yours truly, once argued that Thomas Carlyle's book Sartre Resartus was structured like a sonata in the classical music tradition. This is not a datum about the book, it's a dandum. There's no special evidence that Carlyle was influenced in this way by musical form. Uh, some readers might see the pattern, some might not. It's an observation available from a certain formal um, and musicological perspective. It's an overstanding of the text. And while I think it can help you understand how the book is organized and how the characters are related, it's certainly not a fact about the book that would be agreed to by all. It's an overstanding of the book based on my understanding of it, which can hopefully then lead to further understanding, deeper understanding maybe. To make a more general point, overstanding is the act of saying, I believe I understand what you are saying, but have you considered this other question? So Booth sometimes talks about pluralism as a yes but approach, the phrase he borrows from another critic. So pluralism is kind of a yes but. Yes, what you say is true, but there are other truths to be said. So that's pluralism. Overstanding is like an I understand but approach. Yes, I understand what you are saying and am prepared to prove it to your satisfaction, but I believe you have overlooked this fact or this perspective or this implication. So overstanding helps us put things in a broader perspective and can enhance the vitality of the community. But before you can overstand, you must be able to show that you have understood. All right, so concluding up here, finishing up here, these are the values that Booth would have us practice when we interact with each other. Vitality, or, the, or acting to further the life of the community. Uh, justice, applying to others the standards you would apply to yourself. Understanding, or entering into the perspective of another. And overstanding, being prepared to violate another, another's perspective when vitality or justice demand it. It seems to me that these are uh, useful values to keep in mind, not just when criticizing or analyzing, but also when engaging in any complex social interaction. We might consider asking ourselves these questions. Am I supporting the vitality of the other? Am I creating a double standard? Can I demonstrate that I have really understood the other? Am I justified in this case in violating the other's perspective? So some questions to think about. But that is all for today. So thanks for listening and see you next time.